Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's an Original Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Umbrella Academy, Season 3, Episodes 8 and 9. And now, at last, we know why he got seven. In both timelines, Reginald Hargreaves collected seven special children because he thinks that seven superpowered people specifically are needed to enter oblivion and to do something. Because I remain incredibly suspicious about what's actually going on here. But we will get to that. For now, I want to start by saying that this episode of the podcast is going to be covering two episodes of Umbrella Academy Season 3 instead of one. Today, I'm going to be covering both Episode 8 and Episode 9 because Episode 8, The Wedding at the End of the World, is your typical pre-climax breather episode. It is playing the Citadel DLC right before storming the elusive man's base. It's everyone just hanging around Winterfell the night before the battle against the Night King. It's the gang stopping to watch the Ember Island players right before Sozin's Comet shows up. The crew stops to have a party, to bond, and to allow the audience to bask in their favorite characters having fun or relaxing right before shit really hits the fan. But unlike Mass Effect or Avatar or even that atrocious final season of Game of Thrones, I find myself in a weird place with Umbrella Academy and its attempt at a party at the end of the world. I adore literally almost everyone in Mass Effect, and even the ones that I like the least, Jacob, Trainer, I'm looking at you, even the ones that I like the least, they're tolerable. I'm fond of them. I adore Aang and Zuko and their friends. I loved Daenerys, Arya, Sansa, Brienne, Jamie, Theon, and the others in the North. And until very recently, I would have leaped at the opportunity to see a pre-climax party with the Umbrellas and even the Sparrows. Except, well... I never really liked the sparrows at all, if I'm honest, and I have grown increasingly fed up with all of the umbrellas over the past four or five episodes, and I honestly don't really have any warm, fuzzy feelings toward anyone in this show right now, and hey, didn't we just do this, by the way? Didn't we just have a pre-everything-hits-the-fan party in literally the previous episode? All of the Umbrellas, plus Sloane and Ben and Faye and Christopher, all had a party celebrating their short-lived victory, and this is literally the same thing all over again, except now it's a bit more somber and it's bogged down by Luther and Sloane's stupid wedding that no one asked for. It's literally the same thing twice, in two episodes, in a row. We party for a scene or two, right before the Kugelblitz explodes and eats the universe, and then we party again for an entire episode right before we dash into oblivion to try to escape the Kugelblitz eating the universe. And I just wonder what in the entire fuck the writers are thinking. So much of this season seems to have been comprised of enormous missteps, and I desperately hope that I'm going to have to eat those words once I've seen the finale. But right now, well, I find it telling that I felt the need to combine episodes 8 and 9 into a single day of reactions and a single podcast episode of coverage. Literally nothing happened in episode 8. It was an enormous waste of my time. It didn't really tell me anything I didn't already know about the characters. It didn't really change or affect anything, or so it seems right now. And it wasn't even the fun fan y extravaganza that it might have been earlier in the season. Because between you and me... I'm not really feeling like a fan of these siblings right now. They have all worn my patience incredibly thin. But let's try to get into this recap properly, shall we? It's going to be hard. Again, nothing happens in episode 8, but let's see what, if anything, I can do. 
Episode 8 opens on its most interesting moment by far. We're back in 1918 before Five's time traveling began altering the timeline as far as we know. Reginald marches through a field and it's obvious what he's doing the split second he locates that portal in midair. He's building the obsidian and I would love to know the exact mechanics of this. He knows about the portal to oblivion before he finds it. Oblivion, when we see it in the present, is a hotel nearly identical to the hotel that Reginald builds in the past, except that Oblivion has a notable Japanese influence. Then one of the builders that Reginald hires is speaking Japanese. So how does this work? I'm very intrigued by the exact mechanics, like I said. Reginald built the Obsidian, obviously, but what does he have to do with the Oblivion? Did he build that as well? Did it already exist and he built the obsidian to match it? Did he build the obsidian as he liked and the oblivion modified itself to reflect Reginald's creation? I am so intrigued by the possibilities and I want the truth. It is helped, of course, that there is a certain house of leaviness to what's happening here. Reginald builds the obsidian around the portal to the oblivion and the connective tissue between the obsidian and the oblivion is this eldritch impossible hallway of white and it's a very sci-fi take on some of what Daniel Lusky was doing with the house and the story of the Navidson record is literally my favorite story ever and I just want this show to be doing more with its own take on those tropes. It's so fascinating what's happening here and I wish we could lean into it. So Reginald hires a little militia to send into the Oblivion, and he tells him that he wants, quote, them all dead, and what are the chances, I dread to think, that when he says them all, he means our heroes? The implication during this scene, of course, is that these people are being sent into the Oblivion to fight the person or creature that cuts off Diego's fingers, but based off the plurality of the language here and what happens in the next episode, I think there's more to this than what we're being led to believe. As alluded, my tinfoil right now is that somehow these guys aren't fighting something eldritch or other or monstrous or villainous. Somehow, maybe, I think they might be fighting our primary cast. But that is tinfoil for now and just a small part of my vast and ever-growing web of tangled and extravagant theories about what the hell is happening, so let's get back to the actual events of the show. The men all go into the impossible hallway and their excursion is about as successful as Holloway's was. Nor do I think that Reginald expected it to go much better. Should I be incorrect about any potential timey-wiminess happening here, then whatever these guys went up against that wasn't the Hargreaves killed them all very dead and left them rather cockroach-infested? And if it's not the Hargreaves, and it's certainly not the Minotaur that did this to them, could it possibly have something to do with Klaus and his newly acquired powers? Because I'm sure that Klaus, despite his misfortune at the end of the next episode, will be pivotal to the endgame. Surely, the writers did not make me watch him go through all that shit for nothing. Surely. But back at the modern Obsidian, our last six umbrellas are hanging out with our last two sparrows and Lila. Count them now because it's important. We have nine superpowered people left in the rapidly unwinding universe. Seven heirs and two spares, if you will. Allison has a good point buried beneath her shitty attitude. Why, at the end of all things, are they the only ones who were left? They're not even supposed to exist here, after all. Why has the Kugelblitz spared them and left them alone? Diego tries to come up with a plan of his own in response to this, except that the writers make a dick joke out of it and really just use it as a reminder of how truly dim Diego can be. And am I the only one seeing the tension that's going on between Diego and Ben right now? 
I said it a bunch in my reaction videos, and I'm going to say it again a few times over the course of this episode, I think, but I am increasingly convinced that Ben's real problem is that while Diego is fucking Lila and Luther is fucking Sloane, none of the superpowered siblings want to fuck Ben. I just... Ben's increasingly weird attitude over the course of this episode pretty much fully convinced me that he's desperate for literally any one of the Umbrellas to hate-fuck him, but that he doesn't want to come right out and proposition anyone, and the fact that the next episode has some fanservice-y gestures toward the ever-popular Ben and Klaus ship? Well, I'm clearly not the only one thinking this, am I? And, after Fives whining about how they've been wrong to keep trying to save the world over and over again, Luther and Sloane announce their engagement, and that it's only going to last a few hours. Surprise, they're getting married before the end of the world, which I suppose is technically actually the least objectionable thing that's happening here, relationship-wise. It's really only occurring to me now as I write the script for the podcast, but we need to take a good hard look at the genetics that are happening in this family before Lila and Diego have their baby, I think. I've been mostly joking when I keep harping on Luther and Sloane being brother and sister, because while they're both technically adopted by the same dude, they didn't grow up together and they aren't biologically related. Unless they are biologically related. Like, what did that sparkly shit actually do to create them, I wonder? Because many of the siblings got a Y chromosome from somewhere, and they definitely didn't get it from their bio-moms, so unless we're doing some gene-scrambling even more inventive than the Asaris, well, did they actually get some genetic material from those space sparkles after all? Or from Reginald himself, I dread to think? And does that mean that Sloane and Luther actually are literal half-siblings? Because if they are... Well, that same shit goes for Lila and Diego, too, then. And even if Sloane and Luther are the ones getting married right now, Lila and Diego are the ones procreating. Is that, you know, genetically safe for them to do? I mean, Claire didn't have any superpowers, sure. But what the hell is Lila and Diego's kid going to be like, I dread to think. And it's as Klaus and Reginald show up that I find to my complete and utter surprise that the guy working the front desk of the Obsidian, the character who shares an actor with death from Supernatural, he's actually still alive. He's the only non-Hargreaves person left alive in what seems to be the entire rest of the world, and I am almost as baffled by it as I am by how Klaus and Reginald, you know, got here. Like, the world outside is literally gone. How did they get here? Where have they been, actually? But no, you know what, I'm getting distracted, the guy at the desk is here, and he's played by death, and his name is apparently Mr. Roto, and I feel like that has to be meaningful in some capacity, since it's finally being mentioned now at the end of all things, but I have no idea what it could mean. Is it a reference to the comics? Does Roto have a meaning I don't know about? Is it maybe Japanese? I'm at a loss, and I'm scared to poke around Google for a clue, lest I spoil myself, so I'm afraid that mystery will have to go unresolved. In any case, these two announce to the others that Klaus is immortal now and Reginald has a plan, and let's be real here. It could not be more obvious that Reginald is, as I've always said, wholly up to shit. As Sloane confirms, Reginald isn't taking his pills anymore. But to be honest, I don't know if that really mattered at all. I'm still not really convinced, if I'm being honest, that the meds were doing all that much to him. If Reginald's mouth is open, then Reginald is lying. That is a fundamental fact. And I don't know that the thing with the pills is any different than anything else that he claims. As for Five, he breaks Pogo's claims about Reginald and Oblivion to the rest of the family, and Luther makes it clear that Reginald is not invited to the wedding. 
and good for him. I wish I cared more about this character growth. Also, before we move on, let's take a brief moment to stop and appreciate how fucking toned Genesis Rodriguez is. The show isn't calling attention to it, and the camera thankfully isn't getting all male-gazy with her, which is impressive considering how hard she's clearly working to stay fit as fuck. Like, I wish I had the kind of dedication that this woman clearly has, and to think I only noticed it because I was trying to decide whether or not I liked her shirt. Upstairs, Lila and Diego have a fight about attitudes and priorities at the end of the world, and I've got to be honest, I think Lila is the one who's got the right of things during both of her arguments. Circumstances change between this episode and the next, so while here she's arguing in favor of just chilling until the end of the world and against the same in the next episode, I think she's right in both instances. So it's a shame, then, that it appears her argument here changes Diego's mind so completely that he can't keep up with her when she shifts to his original side in light of Reginald's plan in episode 9. And then there's Klaus and Reginald. Reginald takes a moment out of ranting about how disappointing and shitty his children are and how much he loves to tell them so, to spare Ben some extra rejection, and if that's actually genuine, I really hope it comes back to bite him in the ass. Like, I still think there is ample opportunity for Ben and Reginald to be working together behind everyone's backs, but if Ben was really hurt by this, I hope those feelings wind up paying off in a major way. Now, let's pause for a moment at Reginald's momentary foray into phrenology to highlight that phrenology is a racist pseudoscience best forgotten. And now let's move on. It's time for the world's most awkward bachelor party, and I just... didn't enjoy it? I'm not amused by shitty karaoke in real life, and I am most certainly not amused by it when it's a way for a TV show to waste time before getting to the point of a plot. Worse yet is Luther's so-called advice to Victor. He advises Victor to have a heart-to-heart -heart with Allison, as if that could possibly work. The less said about this, the better, I think, because it makes me so ludicrously angry. Victor has apparently reduced Harlan to, quote, his friend, and he doesn't even seem all that broken up about Harlan's death right now at all. And Luther's whole argument for making amends with Allison is that Allison, quote, has always been good to Victor in the past, better than the rest of us. And like, you, specifically you, Luther, locked him in a soundproof chamber in your basement. Remember? The bar you've set for how to treat Victor is at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. It is not impressive that Allison has cleared it in the past, and that is not enough to make up for what she has done lately, especially when Allison has not let up on her harassment of Victor and is nowhere near ready to start repairing their relationship, if such a thing is even possible. And while the nonsense descends into even more karaoke, Ben looks over all the other boys and sulks. Afterward, he goes to Sloane's room to sulk some more, and he's fixated enough on Diego that I remain 100% confident in my claim that when I say Ben wants to hate-fuck whoever will have him, Diego is at the top of his preference list. But Sloane does not rise to Ben's needling here. Though his entire character at this point is to just run around trying to get someone to match his anger and, like, I guess bend him over a desk and gag him or something, Sloane isn't interested in rising to this challenge. She psychoanalyzes him a bit, becoming a way for the writers to try to tell the audience about Ben's emotional experience because they've done a pretty bad job of trying to show it with any finesse. And then it's time for the wedding. Allison insults Victor apropos of nothing and gets pissed when Victor pokes back, and for some reason Luther's pea brain decides to hold both of them responsible for what Allison is pulling, as if he wasn't right there to hear what actually fucking happened. 
Now, the venue for the wedding, such as it is, is beautiful, and that's about all I can say that's nice when it comes to this wedding. Klaus is extraordinarily fucking annoying in this scene, the cover of Katy Perry's Teenage Dream is a really weird choice, and no one is as much fun to watch in this party scene as I feel like the show wants me to think that they are. Except maybe Lila. Lila is the only one really shining right now, which is a weird experience for me after all the shit she's pulled, including what she's pulled very recently. And because I can't resist, I also want to take a second to note what Ben is doing here. He has seated himself away from everyone else in the family, at Allison's table. Because Allison is the angriest member of the family right now, and Allison is not in a relationship. Ben is at Allison's table because he thinks she is his best bet for an angsty hate fuck. That's what I'm getting at. Honestly, I think I would even like that relationship better than the implication that Ben and Klaus hooked up after the wedding, like the show not so subtly implies. Mostly because Klaus is so batshit crazy right now that I feel like Ben would just be taking advantage of him. And also, it wouldn't be hate-fucking if it was with Klaus, and at that point, why even bother? Let Ben have his hate-fuck. Speaking of hate, though, a far less fun kind shows up in the form of Reginald crashing Luther and Sloane's wedding. He sits down at a table by himself, and no one is at all happy to see him, but Lila takes the opportunity to demand that Diego introduce her. Reginald is suspiciously approving of her, which throws Diego off about as much as it threw me off. And then Reginald gets in a final dig about how it's a shame the world is ending because Diego, quote, would have made a superb father. And I am suspicious as fuck all over again. I have been deeply suspicious this whole time that Reginald is up to something so big as to be far more aware of everything that's going on than we as the viewers are supposed to believe, and that this is just another moment of that. I am so suspicious that this Reginald somehow already knows everything that's going to happen, and my head is just spinning from the force of a thousand Reginald-centric theories. Like, if you watch my reaction videos for this season, you will see that I fully lost my mind with each new clue. My latest lunacy, unless it turns out that I'm right after all and not insane to think this, is that Sparrow Reginald is not the only Reginald running around. I have a half-baked theory that Umbrella Reginald might somehow be here too, or that maybe this Reginald is actually from the future somehow, or that he's from outside the timelines altogether, or something like that. My Reginald theories are Hydra-like at this point. You strike one down and rest assured, I have two more where that came from. And then we have Klaus and Sparrow Ben talking about Umbrella Ben and why the Umbrellas love that dead bastard so much when they can't stand Sparrow Ben. And honestly, Sparrow Ben should be plastered more often. He's more bearable this way, and this is more within the range of the actor's abilities. Sorry to say. But then there's Victor and Allison. This shit is extremely upsetting because I have had this conversation a million times in the past. Someone, a family member, does something truly heinous to me, I react accordingly, and I end up having to apologize for letting my anger get the best of me. And not only is the apology rejected, the very notion that the other person did anything wrong is rejected as well. The person who did far worse claims that they did not do anything at all, and they double down on how crazy or psychotic I am, or how I'm a bitch, and how they never liked me anyway. Victor is having pretty much exactly the conversation with Allison that I have had with a certain family member of mine many times before, and you can bet your ass that my advice to Victor is the same as my advice was to me. Do not associate with this person anymore. 
Do not keep people in your life if they actively make your life worse. You do not owe your parents, siblings, cousins, grandparents, or whoever anything. The only family members that you owe anything to are your children. And Allison, sure as shit, is not Victor's kid, much though she is acting like a goddamn child. As for Luther, he watches all of this happen without saying anything to defend or comfort Victor. And it's all happening against the backdrop of a poem that Reginald is reciting. A brief googling reveals nothing in reference to this, so it's nothing famous. I can only assume that it's something original to the show then, and maybe some fun tidbit of trivia will come out about it in the future. Maybe it's unused MCR lyrics or something. That would be cool. But instead, I think it's foreshadowing. Maybe it's about Reginald's wife or whoever. You know, the bitch on the moon in the next episode's opening. Or maybe it's meant to tell us something about what's going to happen in Oblivion. Cue more dancing. This show needs decidedly less dancing, so says I. Then again, I am nothing if not a buzzkill, so maybe don't take a party pooper's word on how to party. I don't know. You do you or whatever. Up on the roof, the couples get snuggly while the siblings all gather, except for Allison. Diego snuggles Lila. Sloan snuggles Luther, and Klaus snuggles Sparrow Ben. It is blatant fan service that is none too subtle, and if this were Umbrella Ben, I would really be all for this. But I'm sorry. I don't like Sparrow Ben and Klaus together. I just... I could be swayed, probably pretty easily, but at this moment, I am not at all on board. So after Five begins to lose his ability to hold his liquor, the siblings all begin to go their separate ways for the night. Five wanders through the hotel, hurling into plants, and finds Reginald making a deal with a mysterious off-screen someone. Until the apparent reveal later that I am mostly convinced is true, I had fully donned my tinfoil hat, as I alluded earlier. My hope here was that perhaps when Reginald says he was alone in that room, he meant it because Reginald was making a deal not with any of the superpowered kids, but with the original version of himself. Does that make any sense? Not really, no. But it's what I wanted, so I don't know. Here's hoping that what we get turns out to be just as good. In our next episode, though, we find ourselves in an unexpected flashback. Unlike Episodes 8 flashback, which went all the way back to before the umbrellas meddled in time, Episode 9 takes us back to an unseen moment from the original timeline. Luther is on the moon, slowly going insane from isolation and neglect, and the cabin fever of it all makes his last brain cell wholly useless. He rolls up on a mysterious sci-fi wall in the middle of the goddamn moon, and his only response to this inexplicable phenomenon is to yell, stupid moon, like this is a perfectly normal thing to have happen. And beyond that wall, we find something much more ominous than any stupid moon. It's a spacey sci-fi cryosleep tank, and inside it is one Abigail Hargreaves, status deceased. Abigail is, I assume, the woman we saw die, or apparently die, in that flashback from the first season. Pieces of this mystery are coming together. But they're coming together so slowly that I fear we may never have enough of them to complete the puzzle. Netflix, after all, cancels just about everything before it ends, and the only thing that I'm sure is safe from their chopping block is, of course, Stranger Things. So the morning after the wedding finds Ben and Klaus half-naked and disoriented, claiming that they can't remember what happened the night before, and Klaus's language about their bonding that night is very specifically written to tease the ship. Like, 
let's not be coy here. This only stays in the realm of ship tease instead of queer baiting because Klaus straight up is queer. They're not setting these two up this way by accident. The writers are putting a big flashing neon sign above Klaus and Ben's heads, and it reads, we are throwing this bone to the queers and the fangirls. Please do not ask us for more. And I will eat my words gladly if something actually comes of this in the future, but I sure as shit ain't gonna hold my breath. When Five wakes, also disoriented, his recollection of the night before is not so much missing as it is fragmented, and that fragmentation inexplicably inspires the writers to turn his frenzied flashbacks into scenes straight out of a horror movie. They are very well done. They're just an odd inclusion. If they weren't contributing to the overall tonal whiplash of the season, I would quite like them. As it is, though, they just feel like rubbing my nose in the fact that this season keeps hinting toward a horror story, without ever actually committing to doing one. Victor, unlike the others, wakes in his own bed, and his experience is no less unsettling, though. He finds Reginald standing over him with breakfast, and I am exceptionally suspicious of this. Reginald, I will remind you, drugged Victor for his entire life and had Allison rumor him into forgetting about his powers. That Reginald is alone with Victor right now and offering him food scares me. I continue to maintain that he is up to something extraordinarily nefarious. I don't know what it is. And he's confirmed to be murderous toward his children at the end of this very episode. I would not trust Reginald Hargreaves if my life depended on it. And in Victor's case, it pretty much does. Cut to Luther and Sloane. Sloane tries to delicately propose that perhaps Luther is being too hard on Reginald, and that is as wrong as anything has ever been. And then in walks Allison to make shit even wronger. She's offering apologies, trying to convince the others that she's genuinely interested in making amends, but it is suspicious from the jump. If it were genuine, it would be unearned. She can't have had this character growth off-screen that would be truly horrible writing. That it's false, then, comes as something of a relief and a disappointment. I want Allison to get her fucking shit together, apologize, and work toward making actual amends but I don't want the writers to do it in a way that is not earned by the narrative. But the idea that Allison can seem so genuine in this moment, either it's bad acting on Emmy's part, or it's phenomenal acting on Allison's. And since Emmy and Allison are, as far as I know, both pretty good actors, I think it's fair to say that this is not Emmy fucking up. This is Allison selling herself as reformed and ready to be redeemed, and that is terrifying. I had no idea that Allison was able to lie this convincingly. I thought I knew the breadth of the weapons that she had in her arsenal. I thought I knew all of the skills she had to wield against her family. And it turns out I was wrong. Allison is willing to mind-control them outright, but so too is she willing to use masterful subterfuge. And it all makes me wonder. Is Allison perhaps headed into genuine antagonist or villain territory? Because if she's genuinely working with Reginald, I'd say that I think she is. And then we're on to Five and Reginald. The two old men are, well, I don't know that I'd go so far as to call it bonding. They have a chat about reality and the death of worlds, and Reginald knows far more here than he should, I think. It is, I fear, a flaw in the writing that I cannot be sure whether or not this is Reginald slipping up or the writers slipping up. 
But I don't think Reginald should know to call five old man, or to allude to five running away in the original timeline. Am I forgetting when five told Reginald this story? I hope I am. It's possible that it came out in season two and it has just slipped my mind. But part of me, the part that remains infinitely suspicious of Reginald, thinks that perhaps Reginald just overplayed his hand. As for the rest of what Reginald said, it too ties into my suspicions. He talks about having seen various ends of the world, and we've seen him witness one before, sure, and we know that he killed himself in the original timeline to try to avert another, but this implication of who knows how many others is shocking, especially when Five lets it pass without comment. Five doesn't even know that Reginald isn't human, does he? Do any of the siblings know that he's some kind of an alien or something like that? I had not thought that they did, but Five's lack of reaction here and Luther's lack of reaction later makes me think that they must know. And a large flaw that I see in this show is that I am never clear what the characters all individually know about the larger plot. We rarely see people actually giving each other information. And so, sometimes, I remain confused about who has what information. But anyway, from there, the guys talk about the nebulous nature of the past, the present, and the future in the Umbrella-verse. Five talks about having spoken to his future self, but as Reginald rightly points out, there is no such thing as a future right now. Or at least, there isn't any future for Five unless they all go to oblivion, which is of course what Reginald has clearly wanted all along. How exactly Oblivion ties into Reginald's interests on the dark side of the moon and the obviously connected death of Abigail, though, well, that is a bit harder to fathom. And that the scene ends on another little hint that perhaps Reginald knows what's going to happen, that he knows far more about their futures and their pasts than he should, well, it's very ominous indeed. Because if Reginald does not know the future, how the fuck did he know the exact moment when the spot where Five was sitting Will crumble into the Kugelblitz. Now, upon gathering the family, Reginald launches into a story about the mythic significance of the number seven. He references the Companions of the Cave, a medieval legend about Christian youths hiding in a cave to escape Roman persecution, and the Seven Stars, a Blackfoot story in which seven siblings of mysterious origin debate, quote, what to become before settling upon becoming the seven stars that make up the Big Dipper. Interestingly, and perhaps relevantly, both of these stories refer to bands of seven characters, plus an eighth thrown in as an afterthought. In the Big Dipper story, this is because one of the so-called stars of the Dipper is actually two, and also, before that was common knowledge, because there is actually a spider character involved. And in the Companions of the Cave, this is because there are seven sleepers, plus one nameless watcher. Or so my research tells me. In Reginald's estimation, the story is a tad different. In his version of this myth, there are seven bells within a cave that must be rung by seven people, and the ringing of the bells will restore the world as it was. It adds up, I think. Reginald killed himself in season one to inspire his children to prevent an apocalypse. He built Obsidian in 1918 to access Oblivion. In both timelines, he adopted seven children, specifically. In Oblivion, Diego rang a bell that summoned a mysterious person, creature, or monster who became immediately hostile. 
and at the end of this episode, Reginald allows only seven siblings, plus himself as an extraneous eighth, to enter oblivion, going so far as to kill Klaus and Luther to make sure the count is not exceeded. And before I move on, I do want to note, I have a sneaking suspicion and a worry that it may not be that they have to ring seven bells. It may be that they are metaphorically the bells, and they, all seven of them, have to die. But seven, of course, is not an insignificant number in our real-world modern storytelling. Beyond, of course, Umbrella Academy, which now provides the quote on TV Tropes' Rule of Seven page, there are a host of other examples. Often these will match to the seven deadly sins or the seven heavenly virtues or something like that. It shows up again and again and again. Snow White's seven dwarves, Voldemort's seven horcruxes, Del Toro's seven gems, the seven kingdoms of Westeros, the seven Tevinter magisters who storm the Golden City, and many, many more examples. Our culture considers seven lucky and mystical and meaningful, and it's no surprise that Umbrella Academy is using seven as its meaningful number here. And honestly, I'm just happy to finally have an answer on why Reginald specifically absconded with seven superpowered kids. Or most of an answer, I suppose. I'm still not terribly convinced that his motives are actually what he claims they are. Does he actually want to get in there and set the universe right, I wonder? Or is he trying to get in there to set the universe the way he wants it to be? As in, and this is coming together for me now as I write the podcast script, which is part of the reason that I choose to do this podcast the way that I do, I think my theory right now is that Reginald orchestrated this entire long game, including pushing Five into time traveling, isolating Victor from his siblings, and everything else bad that has happened, because he wants to get into oblivion under the right circumstances, he wants to ring those bells, whatever they may be, and he wants to restore the world to such a state that Abigail Hargreaves lives. And there it is. As of right now, that is my new tinfoil. I think this whole thing was never about preventing any apocalypse. Not the first, not the second, and not this one. I think it was about causing this one. I think it was about causing an apocalypse so that he could manipulate these seven superpowered people into going to oblivion and hitting the reset button on the universe so that when the whole thing was made anew, Reginald could have Abigail and perhaps his entire civilization back. I still don't know who exactly Abigail is to him, of course. I'm not sure if she's a wife or a sister, but I think that is what this nonsense is. I am looking forward to finding out whether the finale proves me right or wrong. But with this batshit crazy pseudo-plan comes a certain reticence to go along. The siblings decide to put it to a vote, and of course Lila and Diego wind up fighting about it for little to no goddamn reason, and Allison puts back on her manipulation face. Again, it's terrifying how well she plays this here. She tells Victor everything that she should, which is petrifying because it means that she has known right from wrong all along. It's not that she wasn't able to get these words out or to feel these emotions or to express them. It was that she simply wasn't interested in doing so. She knows what the right thing is because otherwise she would not be able to convincingly offer it to Victor as a false olive branch in order to try to sway him to vote as she wishes. And bless Victor because even though I think he completely fails to see through his sister's lies, he still does not give her what she wants. 
he still chooses to do what he thinks is the right thing. Now, I sort of disagree with him about what the right thing is here. I'm on Lila's side if I'm on anyone's. But bless him for standing up for what he himself thinks is right, not what Allison pressures him to do. Five and Luther have a chat about their votes, and the writers take the time to have another little moment of Ben and Klaus' ship tease, and Five rightfully calls this whole thing out as a trap of some kind. I guarantee that he's correct. It's just that he severely underestimated how badly Reginald would fight to make sure that he got his way. Because I don't think for a second that Five would have let Luther get killed if he thought that was at all a possibility. A pity, then, that everyone keeps underestimating Reginald. And then, after yet even more Ben and Klaus ship tease, we come to the vote. It's four against four. Lila, Allison, Klaus, and Ben vote against Diego, Victor, Luther, and Sloane. And then five breaks the tie. They are not going as a unit, which means they are not going at all. It has to be seven, or else it will be none. Not that Reginald is going to take no for an answer. He is the most manipulative person to ever live, I dare say, and so his last act in the dying universe is to make sure that things go the way he wants. He pretends to take blame onto himself, but of course it's a lie. He waits in the white buffalo suite for one of the siblings to appear, and who should but the one with the least useful ability. Luther walks in on Reginald pretending to sulk, and he lures Luther into complacency with the exact same trick he played on Klaus earlier in the season. Except Luther is not immortal. And so when Reginald kills him, Luther actually dies. I keep telling you people not to trust this old bastard. Elsewhere in the hotel, Five realizes that it was Allison who he saw talking to Reginald while he was drunk. But there's no time for the realization, because Sloane has just found her new husband's corpse. Emmy is doing some face acting here that hopefully means Allison is going to find Luther's death too high a price to pay. But honestly, I think she's in too deep for a change of heart at this point. We're in sunk cost fallacy territory now. I think for Allison, the only way out of this is through. And downstairs, the Kugelblitz pushes into the Obsidian, destroying the exterior walls and Mr. Roto, and the Hargreaves all rush into the hallway in spite of Victor's protests. Allison drags a reluctant Sloan, and Klaus encourages Five to get moving, which means that Klaus is left to bring up the rear beside Reginald. And Reginald, despite working so hard to get Klaus's powers to their peak, despite him calling Klaus a miracle just a few episodes ago, Reginald declares Klaus extraneous and shoves him away from the portal, slamming the door shut before Klaus can even wrap his mind around this most damning and final rejection. But don't you think for a second that I am fooled. There is no way in hell that Reginald's work with Klaus this season was meaningless. I refuse to believe it either from a writing perspective or from an I think Reginald is an evil mastermind perspective. The only thing Klaus really did this season was nail his resurrection powers, and Reginald worked his ass off to make that happen. I do not for a moment believe that Klaus's resurrection abilities are not going to be an integral part of the endgame here, nor do I think that Reginald isn't counting on them to come into play somehow. Honestly, the least believable part of that theory for me is that Klaus actually had the wherewithal to kill himself before the Kugelblitz took him. Also, the physics of how he kills himself is really, really silly. But okay, whatever. I'm going to let it go, if only because I wager it's all going to be worth it in the end. Or at least it better be. So, 
my experience with these two episodes was that I finished up episode eight very much unamused. And so I decided, okay, nothing happened. I'm not in the best of headspaces. Let's just move into episode nine, see if there, you know, anything good. Surely in the penultimate episode, we're going to move into our actual end game. And we did. And I was satisfied. As a matter of fact, it's probably been the first time this season where I finished an episode and I was actually excited to get into the next one. To the point that I actually had to sit down and talk myself out of just going ahead and doing episode 10 along with episode 8 and 9. In retrospect, I'm very pleased that I did stop where I did because I have enjoyed this episode of the podcast in particular. I love being able to sit on the cusp of the end of something and try to puzzle out what I think is going to happen. That is one of my favorite things about interacting with a story. I love trying to figure out where the narrative is going. There's a certain thing of once you have experienced enough stories, you can start to see the way they tend to shape up. And so it's really, really exciting when one manages to subvert your expectations in a way that's actually properly built up, a way that pays off, a way that is narratively satisfying. Um, so I am hoping that that is an experience I'm going to get to have in the next episode. A part of me is hoping that all of my theories get proven wrong and something else phenomenal happens. But a part of me is also very cognizant of the fact that I don't know if anything phenomenal can happen in the final episode of this season, because this season has not largely been phenomenal. I don't know that you can have a phenomenal finale when you don't have a phenomenal foundation upon which to build your finale. And then, of course, there is a part of me that really, really wants to be right. I have many, many swirling, confused, chaotic theories right now, and some of them I find more believable than others, um, more likely to pay off than others, and there's definitely a part of me that's hoping that I do get to see my more likely ones come true. I am very much hoping to see the mastermind plan of Reginald come out in this final episode. I will be so stunned if there is not more to this than the show is trying to let on. I'd say we have more than enough hints so far that Reginald is up to something he's not telling us. And I really do think that my idea of this long con is accurate. We have had enough flashbacks to points in the distant past that I think they are all adding up to a more or less coherent whole, something akin to what I'm proposing. I think his plan, at the end of all things, I think his plan marks him as rather similar to Five. I think we may be moving into territory that is going to clarify that Five and Reginald are foils for one another. As evidenced by this conversation they just had, Five and Reginald are very similar in that they keep trying to prevent an apocalypse, if not multiple apocalypses. I think the crux of their motivation for both of them is to keep specific loved ones alive. For Reginald, that would be Abigail. For Five, it's his siblings minus Victor, who he seems more or less willing to give up to sacrifice if that's what it takes to keep the rest of his siblings. So I think that's what's happening here. I think even in the future, maybe we could be moving into Five versus Reginald territory. I don't know for sure, but I think what we're doing here really is fundamentally coming down to 
5 and Reginald are both kind of trying to do the same thing, and it might end up showing them as actual opposing forces to one another. Reginald wants things restored in such a way that his family lives, and Five wants things restored in such a way that his family lives, and those things may be mutually exclusive. And I think that's a really interesting place for the show to go. I don't know that it will, but that is the impression that I'm kind of getting at this point. And I'm very curious to see if that's actually going to happen, and what will the show do with it if it does. So, we have one episode left of the season. I do not know if this show has been renewed yet. I am hoping, of course, that it will be. Um, I think I have gotten past the worst of my feelings for this show. As I was saying in my previous episode of the podcast, I believe it was, if the show kept the energy that it had in like episodes six and seven for the final three episodes, that would have probably been it for me in the show. Episode 8 was kind of a disappointment, but episode 9 was a marked improvement. And then I'm hoping that episode 10 is also going to be an improvement. Um, of course, I expect episode 10 to end on something of a game changer. They're going into oblivion to do a hit the reset button kind of thing. They're going to try to restore the universe in some capacity. And what I'm expecting to happen, my old theory for what I was expecting to happen, is that we would somehow be reverted to the very beginning of the show. We would somehow go back to that very first apocalypse that Klaus, not Klaus, that Five was trying to avert. But now, based off of what I'm thinking about Reginald, I'm thinking that what's going to happen is that we will hit that reset button and just as we entered a different timeline accidentally at the end of last season, I think that the siblings may be fooled in the next episode into thinking that they are restoring their own timeline, only to find that instead they're restoring what Reginald wants from the timeline. And I don't know what exactly that's going to look like. I don't, of course, know that that is actually going to happen. But I'm thinking that will be the big game changer at the end of this season. We will find ourselves in very new circumstances, even more shocking and absurd, really, than finding ourselves in a different universe with a Sparrow Academy instead of an Umbrella Academy. I think we may end up in a whole new world where maybe even instead of people, we have whatever species Reginald is. It could be something completely wild. Granted, all of that has to be tempered by the idea of the budget for the show. Um, they have spread themselves very thin when it comes to their CGI this season. Certain scenes have been truly atrocious, and nothing has been especially good. They are really overtaxing themselves, I would say. And so you have to come at the idea of a season four plotline by looking at it through the lens of what can they actually afford to animate? And so I don't think that they're going to end up in a whole new world that's just like they're on an alien planet with alien flora and fauna and everything has to be CGI. That could happen, but I hope it doesn't because, again, they cannot afford that. And I don't want this show to look like, I don't know, a 2010 video game. So with all of that said... As I wrap up this podcast episode, I am going to be sitting down pretty much immediately to watch the finale of this season. 
And for the first time since the beginning of this season, I am really looking forward to sitting down and watching the next episode of the show. It has been a slog for the past, I want to say, four or five episodes. And now we're finally moving into territory that I am excited to see what happens next. Maybe I will regret that after I see what in fact does happen next. But right now I am tentatively optimistic. I am looking forward to finding out what happens. I am hoping to be pleasantly surprised. I am hoping to feel satisfied. And if I don't, of course, I am going to have a lot of things to say in my podcast coverage of Umbrella Academy Season 3, Episode 10. That episode, of course, will be coming out in about one week's time. If you are interested in my reaction videos, in the meantime, those are available to $5 patrons on a weekly release schedule or $10 patrons on an immediate release schedule. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching after Umbrella Academy and in the future, then you may be interested to know that $1 patrons get access to my enormous poll of everything on Netflix and HBO that I may want to watch. In the future, that poll will expand to include properties from Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and maybe Amazon Prime. We will see. But in the meantime, I am sticking with Netflix and HBO. Um, if you are not interested in the Patreon at all, that is perfectly all right. You may be interested in leaving a rating or a review for the podcast. Alternately, tell a friend. Or, of course, just keep listening. That is extraordinarily appreciated. And as always, I hope you will join me again next time for my next episode of coverage. And thank you, as always, for listening.